Last week, we uh, finished a series on joy, and we'll continue to sort of focus on joy as we go through the year, but that series, sermon series specifically as the primary focus is ending, we're moving now into uh, a sermon series on Pentecost. And often it feels like that's, one of the reasons we're doing that is because we're actually going to do Acts. And so to focus on the significance of Pentecost and how that shapes the whole book of Acts is extremely relevant. Um, with that being said, uh, often Pentecost, I feel like, can get a, um, a short uh, focus where we'll say walking by the Spirit, being, the Spirit being poured out is super important, but we'll hear lots of sermons on the cross and very few on Pentecost and the significance of it. And if you do hear it, it's often sort of like, well, the prophet started to pick up that like, we needed the Spirit poured out on us instead of noticing the fact that the whole Bible has been pointing to this point, which is that this pouring out of the Spirit is the thing we've been looking forward to. Both the cross and Pentecost are critical, and neither of them can be taken separately. So that's where we're going to be, we're, we're going, to be going today. Uh, before we start, let's pray. Lord, I thank you that we can gather together today. Lord, I pray that you would you would be speaking the words that, I, that need to be spoken, that we would all be uh, open and listening to your guidance. In your name, amen. So to start, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? So what I'm going to focus on today is, is this, this definition, and this is not all-encompassing. This is, my, this is the, the portion that I'll be focusing on today. It is a joining or partnership of humanity with the Spirit where we are so submitted to him and become partakers of the divine nature. In so doing, we don't become less human, but instead are conformed to the image of Christ and become the truest versions of who God designed us to be. And Steve sort of talked about this a little bit um, a couple weeks ago, the idea of the fact that there is a partnership that is going on with being led by the Spirit. And so as we, we sort of focus on that, we think about what does that mean? to do that. A good place to start? At the very beginning, it's a very good place to start. So we'll start in Genesis 2. Verses 4 through 7. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the days that the Lord made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not yet caused it to rain in the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. Now every time in all of Genesis that it says these are the generations of, for instance, these are the generations of Seth. These are the generations of Cain. These are the generations of Ishmael. It always then tells you who are the generations so when we get to this one, we go, oh, these are the generations of heaven and earth. Interesting. And who do we get? We get man. And he is this place where creation and God's life-giving breath are brought together and fused. And so you know, just from this alone, what a massive claim about who humanity is. But if we just go back one chapter, we get even more claims about who humanity is. Genesis 1, 27 to 28, 
So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The image of God. What does it mean to be the image of God? We get some statements about having dominion, ruling, okay? So what's that look like? And we're sort of wondering, well, you know, how do we image what does that mean? And so we get to Genesis 2, and God says, hey, name the animals. And you're like, oh, wait, God's been naming. He's been the one naming. Oh, I see. He's starting to teach humanity how to function, to be, in what an image is. There is a function that is not just about how we look, but is actually how we act, how we, we function in the world that is a description of what it means to be the image of God. No, as we go through the story of the Bible, the amount of times that humanity is images is true, yeah. And we also, it's a really good study on how not to be the image of God, right? But there are times where you get to somebody and you're like, wow, they're imaging really well. So for instance, consider Exodus 7, 14 to 17. This is Moses. And it says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you will say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed me. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it should be turned into blood. Stop there for a second. Did you hear that last part? Did you hear that last part? It's God talking. And what does he say? He says, by this you shall know, behold, with the staff that is in my hand. Whose hand is it? Moses' hand. I will strike the water. To be the image of God at some point, God says, you know, even just earlier on, he says, with a strong arm, I will bring the people out. And yet, if we're looking at whose arm is constantly being the one actively involved, it's Moses' arm. To be the image of God starts to get a little wonky at times because you start to go, well, how does this work? It's, it's, what does this mean? So Tim Mackey puts it this way. It's not saying that Moses is God. It is saying that Moses is an image of God. It's saying that God is so fully committed that he will let himself be fully represented by a human. And that claim is massive. We are not talking about an, an end of the distinction between creature and creator. We're talking about the fact that God is so fully committed that he lets himself be represented by us. And that claim is huge. Tim Mackey puts, also says this, the more that my own will becomes merged with God's will, I don't become less myself. I become more myself and I share in God's glory and become a reflector of God's glory. So God's plan for humanity isn't for humanity to escape its humanness, for our soul to escape our bodies. Instead, the plan is for humanity to live embodied life that is so aligned with God that we reflect God so well that we are little Christs going all over. By participating in his will and his works and in his actions in the world, we become like him. And this is what we see back in Genesis 2. God doesn't say, be an image, and then just leaves them be and says, well, hopefully you figure it out. No, he's teaching them how to do that. 
So with that being said, Genesis 2, 16 to 17 can often seem a little confusing. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So this often raises questions. Is there anything wrong with the knowledge of good and evil? Why? Yeah. So, you know, even just a couple verses later, it says that God has the knowledge of good and evil. So there's nothing wrong specifically with the knowledge of good and evil. Is there anything wrong with humanity having the knowledge of good and evil? No. No. I mean, consider, for instance, Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you know someone to teach you again. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. You're like, oh, well, who, what's the mature look like? For those who have the power of discernment trained by constant practice, distinguish good from evil. There's nothing wrong with the knowledge of good and evil. So then what's the... What's the moratorium, or like the, the statement? You can't have the knowledge of, tree, of good and evil. You can't eat from the tree. What are we supposed to do with that? And I think at this point, the question becomes, well, you know, like look at some of these other people who have this. King David has it. That's what we we're told. Solomon actually prays for it. When he's praying for wisdom, he prays for the knowledge of good and evil. And God says, you, might, you get it. Yeah, absolutely. So there's nothing wrong with knowledge of good and evil. So we have to go back to that story and ask ourselves the question, what are we supposed to do with this? And I think what's interesting is, is to note what happens the very statement right after this one. You, you, sh- you shouldn't eat of the tree of evil, knowledge of good and evil. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. It is not good that man should be alone. He's teaching him. There is something that needs to be taught. Just in the same way, right after this, again, he's naming the animals. God is teaching man things as he's going along. He's not just leaving him be and saying, figure it out. He's maturing him. He's bringing him in. And so if we go back even farther to Genesis 1, and we notice, for instance, on the very first day, God said he creates light, and he saw that it was good. Day two, God separates the waters from the waters, and God saw, nope, nothing. Day three, God brings the land up out of the waters, and he saw that it was good. And then he brings plants up on the land, and God saw that it was good. Day four, God puts the sun, moon, and stars in, in the sky, saw that it was good. Day five, we see again the fact that we now have birds of the air and fish of the sea, and God saw that it was good. And God brings up animals in day six, and God saw that it was good. And then he makes humans, and he sees that the, all of creation is very good. God has been teaching what is good and what is not good. We haven't gotten to the evil part, but God has been teaching all along. There is something about what's going on. We shouldn't be going, well, there's no, there's no, there, we, we're just not allowed to have the knowledge of good and evil. The whole point is God is maturing humanity. He is bringing them into something more. Will they participate? Will they be willing to be matured, to be brought into that, or won't they? And so that brings us to Genesis 3. Genesis 3, 6a. So the, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. So she saw 
that it was good. So in the very act, the very act of disobedience, she is defining what is good and evil. And it's contrary to God's guidance. It is contrary to where God wants to lead her. He is teaching her, and she chooses to seize this knowledge on her own terms. Not to be what she's designed to be, but chooses to, instead of ruling over the animals, to be subservient to the wisdom of an animal, the snake. So she chooses to become less than God designed her to be. So the biblical perspective that even comes out of the story is the fact that there's nothing wrong with the knowledge of good and evil. It's about timing and method. And this is so true of so many stories. I mean, we consider that Moses, the first time we meet Moses and we really sort of see him acting, he recognizes there's something about wanting to free Israel, but the very act of how he does it, about bringing them out of oppression, is to to do it in a, a way that is contrary to God. And so then he flees. He has to flee because the timing and the method are wrong. And we can look at so many people and look at the timing and method are so important to God. It is not just the fact that there's something about the knowledge of good and evil. It's about how it's achieved and how it's learned. So then we get to the very end of that verse of verse 17. It says, for in that day you shall surely die. And we see Adam and Eve and they exit the garden. They look awful alive, or they seem awful alive to us. But God said they were going to die on the day, of, uh, on the day, not just that some other day, someday in the future, they will die on that day. So we're left with the question, was either the snake right in saying that it was, they weren't going to die? <laughs> Thank you. No. Or that we need to think deeper about it. And so we could, we could spend a whole section on this, but I, I think one of the easiest ways to see this is actually to go to, to is the vision uh, Ezekiel has of the dry bones. Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones is about Israel being in exile from God's presence. And in so doing, they are dead. And God's breath comes in and brings new life where it wasn't before. And in the same way, when Adam and Eve are driven from the garden, they are separated from God's presence. There is a death that occurs that is worse than just death. It is a separation from God. And so when we're brought back into that, we are brought into new life. And Jesus is totally tracking with this, right? I mean, think about John 20. John 20, verses 21 and 22. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them. Just as in Genesis 2, we see God's breath being brought back in to humanity and they're being brought back to life in a way they haven't been for so long. It is God's presence that is infilling in the way that we're told in Genesis 2. Except even more so. Instead of God's breath, it's God's very spirit that is actually there. The thing that was hovering over the waters in Genesis 1 is now inside of us. We've been brought to new life. But the question becomes, okay, that's a long span between Genesis 3 and the pouring out of the Spirit. So we leave Genesis 3 having this idea of the fact that there is a death that's occurred and that humanity has become less than they were designed to be. How are we going to solve that problem? 
And so what we're going to look at as we move forward sounds, will sound a little strange to you. We're going to look at false Pentecosts, the idea of things that are the not true version of what we're looking for. And I, I remember somebody at one point telling me that sometimes the best way or a way to help make clarity of something is to look and say not just what something is, but what something isn't. And so we're going to look today at what Pentecost isn't. What it isn't is just will hopefully bring clarity as to what it is. So as we move forward from Genesis 3, we get to Genesis 4, and now humanity has not only just disobeyed God, they've actually started to kill the other images of God. And we move forward in, through Genesis 4, and we get to the end, and now we now have polygamy, and we have someone who's not just slightly embarrassed about killing, but is just proud of it. Humanity has continued to degrade. Creation is being more and more corrupted. And then we get to Genesis 5. And we get the line of Seth. And we're, we get people like Enoch. And we're like, wow, I mean, he walks with God. He walks with God in the way that Adam and Eve were supposed to. We get to Noah. And we're like, okay, this is looking pretty good. Things are maybe looking up. And we get to Genesis 6. And by halfway through Genesis 6, God's going to destroy the world. <laughs> what happened? So Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore to them children to them. These were the mighty men's, men who were of old, the men of renown. Now the conclusion for this is the sons of God are supernatural beings who join with humanity and create something that is less than humanity. It is a perversion of humanity. It is something that is part supernatural being and part humanity. Now, before you start throwing things at me, no, don't, please don't give them the eggs. <laughs> or walk out. Stick with me here, okay? This is a false Pentecost. This is not what we've been brought to. This has been a controversial pa passage for at least 1,800 years. And so I want, I want to to walk through this, okay? I'm gonna slow down and we're gonna work through this. So the first place I wanna start is, before we really think too much about it, is to look at what it, the, the, often the contrary, or the way people will put this forward, what it is that isn't this. It's not, people will say it's not supernatural beings with humanity, it's something else. It's just humans. So let's just talk about that for a second. One of the arguments in the first one is, this makes me feel uncomfortable, or stated another way, God wouldn't allow this ha to happen. Yes, this is super uncomfortable. You should feel uncomfortable. If you don't, we need to have a talk. This is wrong. This is so wrong. But that doesn't mean it's not true. Demonic possession makes me feel really uncomfortable. It doesn't mean it's not true. We get to the point where we get so familiar with passages or certain ideas that we get almost like, inoculated to how awkward or uncomfortable they are. So when we see something new, it feels really uncomfortable. It's sometimes important to remind ourselves of all of the strange things we already believe 
you've already drunk the Kool-Aid if you're here, right? If you're a Christian, there are a lot of weird things you believe. Consider this quote from Michael Heiser. We impose our modern worldview on the Bible to make it conform to our intellectual happy place. But we deceive ourselves in thinking this work is legitimate. We fail to realize that the supernatural things we want to avoid are no more supernatural or weird than the things that define the Christian faith. What is so normal about the virgin birth? The Trinity, the deity of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the hypostatic union of the incarnation, Jesus being 100% God and 100% man. Every single one of those things is strange and weird. You've just been in the church long enough, you sort of got used to it, okay? So if we make our decisions off of what we believe on the weirdness factor, then you should just stop reading the Bible right now. So we're not. We're going to keep going. So what people will put forward then as the explanation is that the line of Seth is what we were talking about because it's what we just came off of, right? Genesis 5, we're reading through. We just got off of the line of Seth. They're being godly. Adam was a son of God. So therefore, the line of Seth is the sons of God. This raises a couple issues, but I think the easiest way to think about this is this idea that um, if you don't know what a word means, you just need to look back, like a phrase means, you just need to fill it in from previous things. So let me point out to you all of the things we already don't have answers for in the story. Why is the garden put in the east of Eden, right? We don't, we're not told, it just says the garden's in the east of Eden. Mm. Who's the talking snake? If you're, just trying, if you're going to use the same logic, right, then you need to be able to answer that question with those first couple chapters. We don't have an answer. We have to keep reading to understand that. Who's the seed of the serpent? Are we, if we're going to do that, then what we need to assume is, is that the rest of the story is actually going to be a battle between humans and snakes. It's not, okay? So then you can't, you know, like, do you understand what I'm saying about the logic of this, okay? Just if we read a story if, or watch a movie um, I feel like this is something that I see with the, my, my kids is we start a movie and something new gets introduced and they're like, what is that? What is that? And I'm like, guys, it's the beginning of the movie. Stick with it. It'll get explained. In the same way, the Bible functions like that. If you don't have an answer, stick with it. What are cherubim? Now, we know what cherubim are, but how do we know that? Because we read more of the Bible. We stuck with it. Otherwise, we go, I don't know, what are cherubim? But somehow they're there. We don't, we don't have an answer for did they die after eating the fruit? We have to stick, go, stick forward. Otherwise, we go, well, they left and they're still alive. That's weird. Adam and Eve are sent to the east. What's with that? Cain's offering is not accepted. Why is that? Sin's crouching at the door. What is sin? Why is it crouching? What door? Noah's told to take clean animals. What clean animals? Noah just goes, yep, sure, got it, cool. You see the problem here, okay, right? We have so many terms or ideas that we don't have an answer for. So why this one would all of a sudden be like, you gotta fill it in with what you know. Let's stick with the rest of the book and keep reading. So let's just go back. Garden in the east of Eden. You're not gonna find that until the end of Exodus. Talking snake. That's going to be one that's filled out, but you know, potentially isn't even explicitly stated till Revelation. Seed of the serpent. Again, you know, Jesus reads that at least in one light and says, you brood of vipers. Okay, so he's seeing it, but we don't get explanations of that type of thing right off the bat. 
Cherubim, you've got to stick to at least the end of Exodus, but really Ezekiel before you get much clarity on that. Did they die after eating the fruit? Yeah, again, you've got to stick with it until Ezekiel. Adam and Eve sent to the east. You've got to stick to the end of Exodus. Cain's offering not accepted. You've got to stick to Leviticus. Oh, uh, if you've got your uh, David Sermon bingo card, pull it out and check Leviticus for me. <laughs> Sin crouching at the door. Boy, you've got to stick with, you know, all these things. You've got to start sticking with it. Again, end of, end of Exodus for a lot of these types of things. Clean animals. Leviticus. Double check. And then on the, on, so besides the line of Seth, what else are we going to do with that? We also have an issue, which is if we're saying that what happens is, is that um, good humans and bad humans create, procreate and they make the Nephilim, then if like I go out and marry a non-Christian, can I do that? <laughs> Thank you, babe. All right, next one. Angels don't have the right parts, okay? Matthew 22, 29 to 30. Jesus, Jesus is talking to the Sadducees, and it's this, this question about marriage. And, you know, they put the, forward this idea of the fact that this woman marries, and then a husband died, and another husband dies. Who's, who's she going to be married to? And Jesus answered and says, but Jesus answered them and said, you were wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, people will say, see, that's proof, therefore, that this isn't possible. I've been told I'm very hard-headed. So you, thank you. you. You might say that my head is like this pole. We're both, you know, hard. My head's sort of round. It's sort of round. It's, I'm white. It's white. So we're similar. But we wouldn't say that my head is the pole, hopefully. That there's, so that there's something about how can they be alike, but that they, there's something different about what they're not like, okay? So this one doesn't really answer the question. It just says that we will be like angels. In what way will we be like angels? That's the question, really, that we leave with that one. So Luke 20, 34 to 36, gives a deeper exp- answer to this question. Ma- you know, Matthew and Mark both give a shorter, it just says they'll be like angels. Luke 20, 34 to 36. And Jesus said, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain in that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So it's about the fact that we won't die. It doesn't say anything about what is or isn't capable of what angels are capable of doing. Now, I've seen diagrams of what humans all the different parts. I've never really seen one of what angels are or are not capable of. They eat. We see that in certain passages. What else are they are or are not capable of? There you go. Yeah. So maybe just step back from this is to say God created Jesus, and we don't say that God had relations with Mary. Okay? So the specific method, I'm not telling you the method. I'm saying this, this is just just trying to be consistent with what scripture says. So, okay, so we've sort of knocked out all of the, the reasons that people would say this can't be what it says. So let's, go, let's just move forward here. So um, sons of God or sons of the Most High is always, always in every other passage in all of the Old Testament talking about supernatural beings. Consider Job 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. The sons of God. 
And that's three times stated in, in Job. Psalms uses it multiple times. For instance, Psalm 29, verse 1. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. What's weird about that is, is it says, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. If you actually look at the Hebrew, it says, sons of God. And if your book, Bible's like mine, it actually has a little note at the bottom that says, sure, sons of God. So someone actually takes poetic license here and says, this is poetry. How are we going to make it flow? They put in po- heavenly beings. Every other time in Deuteronomy and three times in the Psalms, all of the other times, it's always talking about supernatural beings. Why we would then just make Genesis 6 the standalone one-off instance is really a pretty big question for us. Let's look at some New Testament passages then also. Just to make some, keep, keep thinking about this a little bit more here. The first one is 1 Peter 3, 18 to 20. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Now that passage is a strange one. It has a lot of things going on there. But it's talking about spirits that did not obey in the time of Noah. Now, one of the very first people who actually put forward the fact that this was the sons of God are not supernatural beings is Augustine. And that's late, sort of 300 AD. And we actually have evidence that he has no idea what to do with this passage. He shrugs his shoulders and goes, I don't have a clue. Why are there spirits in the time of Noah that are being judged? I don't have a clue. But if you understand what Genesis 6 is talking about, then all of a sudden this does make a lot more sense. 2 Peter 2, 4-7. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as the righteous lived among them day after day, he was tormented by his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And finally, Jude, verses 6 through 8. And the angels who do not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. In both First Peter, or Second Peter and in Jude, they are both making the same point that the perversions that we see both in Genesis 6 and in Genesis 19, God brings his people through that. That even those things cannot stop God's sovereignty over creation. And I think that's, an, you know, just, just that alone, just to see the fact that even those things can't be stopped is, a, is a, such a great reminder as we sort of think today and we've been praying about like Ukraine and what's going on there, that even in these extremely, extremely messed up situations, God works and moves through all of them.
So two, two last reasons I just want to focus on here. Again, I, I told you, I wanted to slow down on this because I know this is such a controversial passage. Yes, you should feel super uncomfortable with this passage. But we'll continue to focus on it a little bit more here. The Septuagint, which is written, it's the, Greek, the oldest Greek translation we have, is written about 300 AD, or I'm sorry, 300 BC, to about 200 BC. It just explicitly comes out and says it. It doesn't say sons of God. It just changes it and says angels of God with sons of men, or with daughters of, of men. It doesn't, even parse, it doesn't even wait for you to like go later on and try to figure it out. It just says it's angels of God. Like, let's, let's just be clear about that, just in case anyone's confused. So why is this passage even fought about at this point, if it's so clear? Until 250 AD, this was the answer. And so from the time of the ex- before the time of, of the Jewish exile, we don't have a lot of biblical writings about what people thought about Scripture. We just have Scripture. From, 250, or from the end of exile on, we have what's called Second Temple literature, and there's lots of it. It's prolific. They have extra books, extra biblical books, all different types of things. And then, and in that, the answer is always, Genesis 6 is talking about heavenly beings and daughters of men. It's not a question. Until 250 AD, that was also the answer in all of Patristi- uh, the early church fathers. The answer was that. So why all of a sudden the change? What, what are we supposed to do with that? Why does it all of a sudden change? And the answer is, in the same way that so many other things that we read through the Bible make us feel uncomfortable, the gospel changed the world. It completely changed the world. What we think, how we act, how we just interact with the world. The idea, the fact that Genesis 1 comes out and says, all, all of humanity is made in the image of God is so contrary to thousands and thousands and thousands of years of culture. But now, everyone just gets it. You know, well, you can't, you can't take advantage of that person. No, they don't say image of God, but all of all the cultures that, you know, you start hearing complaints about, well, you know, the abuse of these people, that's because people have gotten it. We're all made in the image of God. They may not understand that that's what they believe, but the gospel has so changed the world that we just, these underlying truths have become true. So in the same way, we got to go step back just for a second. In these cultures, you're probably most familiar with things like Greek mythology. What are the heroes? Most of the heroes are a place where gods and humans create something that's not either of them. And in Greek mythology, those are the pinnacle of what we all would hope to be. Gospel comes back and says, that's absolutely not correct. Humanity was already made in God's image. We don't need to be made in anybody else's image. We're already made in God's image. And so this story in Genesis 6 is a critique, a very critique of the whole world that is functioning at that time. This whole world is saying, what we need are people that are better than just people because people sort of are terrible. The Bible comes back and says, that's absolutely not true. Humanity was made in the image of God. We are the generations of heaven and earth. We're the place where God's life giving breath and creation overlap. So let's see. And so this is the, the idea here is, is that in the whole claim of this is the fact that humanity is becoming part supernatural being at the expense of being human. 
And so Jesus comes onto the scene. And in this incarnation, is in his incarnation, Jesus saves us by becoming like us, by taking on our humanity on himself, so that we can be truly who he's designed us to be. It's not by becoming less of human. It's by becoming fully who God designed us to be. And that's what this first Pentecost, false Pentecost is, is, is about. It's about casting a vision that is so contrary to the very image of God. The second false Pentecost is a little bit more familiar to us and may feel less awkward, but that doesn't mean it's any less awkward when you really think about it. Mark 5.1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of, Ger- of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him on the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains in part and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs, on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. So this is, again, humanity and some type of unclean spirit or demon that 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 is a fusion. And when we think about what the spirit is, this is not what the spirit works like. It doesn't function like this. It doesn't create chaos. It doesn't create a, this, this uncontrollable actions and behaviors that just cause problems. This, this is not how, how, we, how we are um, explained or taught to think about how the Spirit works. Mark nine seventeen to 22, And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him immediately, it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus, and Jesus said to him, if you, can, if you can, all things are possible for him who believes. Immediately the father cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. So again, we see this action of what the spirit doesn't work like. And I think this is important to meditate on. The spirit doesn't just start throwing us about. As Steve sort of talked about last time, the idea of like when we, when we have the spirit moving in the church, we're not talking about things that create chaos or mess or just all of the disruptions. There will be times where things maybe don't go as we planned. That's not to say that that's not true. But to say the fact that there is, there's going to be a contrast between the way the spirit moves and the way these other things move. Okay? I think Luke really creates a, a nice uh, contrast for us in this. Luke 4.1, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit to the wilderness. Verses Luke eight twenty nine. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. 
For many a time it had seized him. He had kept him under guard and bound him with chains and shackles, for he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the spirit. So you can be led or you can be driven. And if we look at how the spirit moves, we see the type of descriptions that we see of him. He teaches us. He intercedes for us. He guides us. He helps us. The relationship is very different than demonic possession. So here's, here's the contrast that we get, okay? We get this contrast between we can become something more by being joined to something that's not God and become something that's no longer an image of God but something else. We can be joined to something in such a way that we are not led, we are driven. It creates chaos and mess. Or we can be joined in such a way that it is a partnership, that it brings us into something more than we could be on our own, but it brings us in the fullness of who we're supposed to be, who we were always designed to be. Second Peter 1, 3-4, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises that, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. So just to go back to the very beginning, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? It is a joining or partnership of humanity with the Spirit where we are submitted to him and become partakers of the divine nature. In so doing, we don't become less human, but instead are conformed to the image of Christ and become the truest versions of who God designed us to be. So as always, before I close, I open up for questions. Likely there's one. I didn't cover anything controversial this morning. Yes, Richard. Um, just one thing about, you know, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Yeah. As far as I understand the word yom, for a day. Okay. In a period of time for a day. Okay, yeah. Because it even, Genesis even talks about in the day in which God created the things of heaven which he did it in seven, you know. So, um, and I think there's another verse in, I think it's in Genesis, where it says, in dying, you shall die. That, that's the one. It's, it actually says, die, die, is the way it's, it decide, the Hebrew says it. Yeah. So, so it's, it, it, it's, it, you know, it, it raises the question, what does die, die mean? You know, so in, in Genesis, in Genesis two, when it says, it says, like, on the day of it, you shall die, it actually says, die, die. Um, so in, you will die, in dying, you will die. And what, is that, what does that look like? Um, so, I mean, once yeah. the process of death started... You know, yes, okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, so I think it, because of the Hebrew play on words, yes, the answer is... Oh, let me, I'm sorry, let me go back. Uh, Richard asked for our, our audio and things like that. Richard's basically asking the question, is the way that the wording is done that day could mean time period... Um, or the fact that there is something about uh, death being an uh, initiation and not a, a completion of something. Yes, absolutely. I think there's plenty of, of things to meditate on there. I'm just saying that an aspect of death that we can see in, in understanding the way Scripture works is that being separated from God is a death. And I think Leviticus, check your box again three times, um, is, is an ex- example of that, which is to be outside of the camp is to be away from the God, life-giving God and, and all of that. 
And to, as you approach God, you have to be even more and more not covered by death because the closer you get, the closer you get to life and truly like the, all the power that comes from life, the less you gotta be covered by death. And so there's different ways that I think scripture shows us that, that by being separated from God, there is a death that happens. So it can be both, I think is you know, sort of part of the answer there. Trisha? Um, so the, if I'm understanding what you're saying, yeah, sure. the presence of the sons of... How it sons of God. What, the sons of God yes. are really demonic people who unite with other humans who aren't demonic, and then they make this creation that is neither of them. Supernatural beings are what sons of God are. And so it, we could say angels because it's simpler, but their sons of God is actually an official title. So demonic, angels... Supernatural part of this person is what I'm trying to say. Is that what you're saying? Sons of God join with man, form something that is Nephilim. That is then something that is neither human nor angel. It is someplace in between. And it may not be demonic. And it may not be demonic? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> That doesn't make sense. But anyway, Good. so yeah. my question is, is um, if it's men, I mean, if they become demonic, or if, what you said, sons of God, I'm asking, is it also inclusive of all? Uh, sons of God, meaning man and woman, who would unite and create other things? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're saying... Um, specifically women that were the ones that were involved in this only with the supernatural beings and not man. Um, that's just the way it's worded. I, yeah, yeah. So I don't know that we get a lot of clarity for that. We could jump to a lot of extra biblical texts who meditate on it. I think that you get questionable at times as to how that interpretation is. I'm just reading it for what it says um, and how it's like that type of thing. So we, we could add other stuff. You get really, really strange things if you read like the book of First Enoch and others. So um, that, yeah, I think are way beyond what we want to cover this morning. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, so the answer is yes. There's something about humanity joining with that. The specific, you know, methods are, yeah, beyond the cover this morning. Uh, yeah. Also because there's a lot of kids in here. <laughs> I've tried to specifically use words that, yeah. Does that cover everything you were yeah, looking for? I was, I was curious of where, if there was cut and dry or, you know, further study or whatever. You want. Yeah, yeah, we could talk about more about that afterwards if you'd like to, and anyone uh, who could stick around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Steve, right. Yeah, so um, just to, again, for audio, for, uh, what Steve says is basically, yeah, this is, this is an angelic rebellion um, that is separate from the Genesis 3 rebellion, and that there's something about that that... Um, that actually perverts creation and to the point where God has to do something about it. He steps in and, and, and brings something about that. We can, we can look at that and sort of think about it a couple different ways. One which is, if we are made in the image of God, how do you corrupt the image of God? Join it to something else. If you're also looking for where the seed of the serpent is, like what's that seed? One of the explanations could be this, right? If you're looking for something that needs to be contrary to creation and is something that is a seed that is progressing on, this is one of the answers for that. Okay, so there are different ways to sort of see this idea, but that there is an angelic rebellion that occurs and that in doing so actually perverts God's intended design for humanity is, is to understand that. When you say yes, Trisha. that the seed of the serpent could be this, yes. then you're saying to me is we're hypothetically thinking that this could be an answer, but it's really not in Scripture. 
Is that what you're saying? No. Oh. What, what makes you think it's not in Scripture? Well, I don't know. You just said it could be this. And so you're oh, okay. saying, yeah, yeah. you know what I'm sure. saying? You're, you're like saying, well, I can see how that would fit in there, you know. Sure. And I'm not somebody who wants somebody saying to me, well, that could work. Yes. So yeah, I yeah, yeah. Okay. From the Lord in His Word. Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. Sure. I want it to be true. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, uh, for, for now, let's just say it's the corruption of the image of God. Um, and that I think there are other ways to get to that, but the other one, um, we'll just not focus on that for today. Um, just, just to recognize the fact that they're, they're, like, we, are, we, are, we are the image of God and not the image of something else. And so... And he gave us a mind that we could have connotations in our brain that aren't of his. You know, I mean, we have a free will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I understand what you're saying, but I don't... I, it really bothers me if they say, well, this could be the answer. Yes. Okay, you know, sure. No, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, 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 that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm just saying I think there's, it's, 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 a long, it's a long thing to go through that. So let's just focus on the fact that um, it is a perversion of what God intended humanity to be. And that, that I think we, we can, we've seen that already this morning. And so from that standpoint... Again, what it means to be joined to the Spirit is not to lose ourselves, but to become fully who we're supposed to be. The Nephilim and being joined to something that isn't, isn't God is to become something less than what God designed us to be. Richard. Just in terms of what Trish was being concerned about, I think all that you were saying was that this could be one interpretation of that passage, which, I mean, there's a lot of times when theologians say, well, we're not entirely sure, but, you know, for the study, we know for sure. It's not like you're going against what Scripture is saying. You're just saying, well, this could be the interpretation. Yes. Or one understanding of what this person Right. So, yeah, so we could at one point say this is one interpretation. What Trish is concerned over, and I think is a valid concern, is, is that we don't just start filling in things um, without having good evidence for why we should believe it. I think there is good evidence for thinking about this, but it's just something that we don't want to cover this morning because otherwise you'll be here another 45 minutes and that's not... <laughs> Hopefully at least some of the things were, were helpful, but I don't think you guys want to be here that long. So um, yeah, I think with that, any other questions or otherwise I'll close. Oh, Dan. Um, when it talks about they shall surely die in the separation of God, yeah. I think in my interpretation, that meant, you know, we're body, mind, and spirit, that the Holy Spirit was basically taken away from man, and it wasn't until, except in certain spots, where God brought back his spirit, you know, like, you know, Saul was going to a spot where... Yeah, so to, to your, yeah, to, to restate sort of what we've, we've already been saying, which is that there is a, a spiritual death that occurs, that being separated from God's presence is a spiritual death. And that we do see times where there are people who are functioning in the spirit who have been brought back to life. But to um, even understand passages where we're talking about the flesh, the flesh is dead, but it is brought back to life in the spirit. And so then it becomes something more. And it's not to then become less, but it's to become more. Um, and it's, it's aligned then with the spirit. And that's important. Not that they're separate things, that they're battling against each other, but that being aligned and being brought into the fullness of who we are. So I'm going to close here, um, actually, with uh, a quote from C.S. Lewis. Uh, many of you are aware of the book called Screwtape Letters. Um, for those of you who aren't, um, this passage will, 
is written, the whole book of Screwtape Letters is written from the standpoint of a demon advising a young, a senior demon advising a younger demon on how to be a good demon and keep humans from living the full, to their full potential. So as it does this, it constantly refers to the enemy. The enemy is God, okay? So if you, if you track with that, then you'll, you'll hear this through, and I'll read it twice. To us, a human is primarily food. Our aim is the absorption of its will into ours, the increase of our own area of selfhood at its expense. But the obedience which the enemy demands of men is quite a different thing. One must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of little loathsome little replicas of himself, creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and need to be filled. He is full and flows over. Our war aim is a world in which our father below has drawn all other things into himself. The enemy wants a world full of beings united to him, but still distinct. So read that one more time just because hopefully, you know, to, to catch all of that. To us, a human is primarily food. Our aim is the absorption of its will into ours, the increase of our own area of selfhood at its expense, but the obedience which the enemy demands of men is quite a different thing. One must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself, creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he's absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and need to be filled. He is full and flows over. Our war aim is a world in which our father below has drawn all other things into himself. The enemy wants a world full of beings united to him, but still distinct. So Lord, we do thank you for the pouring out of your spirit, for bringing us back to life, that you lead us, that you teach us, that you intercede for us. You bring us into who you always designed us to be, not to be less, but to be more, to be fully joined to you and partakers of your nature. Amen.